This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. I'm back again today with General Paediatric Consultant Dr. Tia Shields for part two of our episode on developmental delay. If you joined us last week, you'd have heard Dr. Shields give an excellent overview about development. In this episode, we're focusing a little bit more on some of the factors that can confuse the assessment of development, as well as an approach to investigations and management. We hope you find it helpful. So Kia, we finished last week's episode by talking a bit about the individuality of patients and their development and the importance of recognising that. So this week, I just wanted to start by talking a little bit about variations of normal. And are there any confounding factors that might kind of muddy the waters a little? So things that might make a child look like there's an issue with development where actually they're just versions of normal. Are there any particular examples of that? Yeah, yeah, there there are. And I think it's 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 really well worth remembering that warning from history of what we used to do to left-handed people. Like being left-handed is normal, but we used to force people to try and write with their right hand because that was normal development. And if you weren't developing normally, it was a problem. Now we just kind of go, oh, someone's left-handed, that's normal. There are confounding factors depending on how you categorize what normal is. So there will be, for example, children who've got a hearing problem will have speech delay. You fix the hearing problem and they will learn to talk at a normal rate. Children who are brought up in households where one language is principally spoken will look as though they're delayed when they're being assessed in a nursery environment because they're not producing an awful lot of English. Children who are brought up in bilingual households may form some of their their words and phrases a bit late because they're trying to develop two different primary languages at the same time. The way you and I learn Italian is to translate everything from Italian into English and from English into Italian. If you're brought up speaking Italian and English at the same time, you don't do that. You learn two primary languages and then you learn that they're not interconnected, that they're separate and you start separating them. So that's a confounding factor. One of the big confounding factors is prematurity. So if you're born at 35 weeks, you're not term until you get to 40 weeks. So it's totally reasonable for a child who's born at 35 weeks to achieve a smile, which should usually be by four weeks old, by the time that child is nine weeks old, because you've got the five weeks of developing up to term before you've got the four weeks of development of smiling. Now, you'll find that children who are born premature do end up achieving those milestones maybe slightly earlier than that extended prediction because they've got a whole load of stimulus going on around them that they didn't have in the womb. Prematurity is really important to take into account because it's very clear that a child who's born at 24 weeks is going to have potentially quite a lot of health problems. But equally, that child is going to be four months old and still not yet term 
they're clearly not going to be sitting with support in an incubator on NICU. So you've got to adjust all of your developmental milestones for prematurity, just like you have to adjust your auxology, your height and weight and head circumference for prematurity. So make sure that when you're in a developmental exam station, that one of the first questions that you ask is whether the child was born on time or not. Because if you've got a child who was born three months early and they're exactly a year old and they're not walking yet, that child is really nine months old. So you want them to be sitting independently, have a, a pincer grip, but you don't necessarily expect them to be pulling to stands and walking around yet. And that's a really good communication station in an exam as well to have a child who's not meeting their milestones, but actually it's just because they're a bit premature and they're achieving everything that they should be and having a difficult conversation with a parent about that. Anybody who's got lots of primary health problems, so children who have got a lot of metabolic demand on them because they're getting an awful lot of infections all the time, they'll be delayed because they don't have the effort, the energy to get up and practice walking. They're exhausted and in respiratory distress. So children with cardiovascular disease, children with metabolic disease, children with neurological disease, they will all be delayed and you've got to work out what's normal for them. But for some of them, if you fix the problem, if you fix a ventricular septal defect, then they catch up really quickly. The other confounding factor is for those children who are in hospital a lot and therefore spend a lot of time in bed because they're post-surgery or, you know, they've broken their legs and they're in casts for a long time or whatever it is. They will look as though they're not developing properly because they're not getting the right level of stimulation and practice. So chronic disease is a big confounder. And if it's fixable, then the developmental delay is also fixable. So you've got everything from just things in the family home, like language that is spoken all the way through to chronic disease, all of which may be masking normal development. I've talked, for example, about language, which is an example of if you brought up in one language, you're going to be delayed in the language that you're assessed in. But more broadly, I guess that does draw in the idea that how you are parented will affect your development. So your synaptic plasticity, the ability of your brain to prune away connections and forge new connections is really important in the acquisition of skills. And so you've got to have access to the ability to practice. And so parenting strategies do affect development. And the most obvious example is neglect. And that if your child is neglected, if they're not spoken to, if they're not given auditory stimulus, then they're not going to be able to speak. If you don't let your child move around, if they're strapped into a car seat in front of a television, they're not going to be able to walk. They may well try, but they could be delayed. Paradoxically, some children who are neglected end up with a developmental acceleration. So if you are a sort of lovely middle-class parent and you take your child around in a papoose all the time and then you sit them on the floor and you play with them a lot and you grab objects for them and stimulate them with those objects, a baby doesn't necessarily get the opportunity to start trying to reach and roll and things for themselves. Whereas if you leave a baby on the floor and walk out of the room, it's in that baby's interest to, to really reach for stuff and try and move around. So you get this really paradoxical thing where the slightly neglected child 
can end up rolling, crawling, walking slightly ahead of the child that is overstimulated and overparented. But that is not a reason to neglect your child. The risks of neglect are huge, but it's just something to be aware of that neglect has many forms and may not be particularly obvious in the early stages of life. So not having access to stimulus begets a certain degree of developmental delay. And if you talk to your child a lot, they will coo and babble and talk back and, and be a better baby conversationalist than if you ignore your child. So neglect is the big one. There are also variations of normal as well as confounding factors. And so the most famous ones, I guess, would be children who don't crawl. So your developmental milestones, there are some that are really key and some that sort of don't really matter as much. There are children who will roll everywhere. There are children who will bottom shuffle rather than crawling. And these are normal variants. And children who bottom shuffle may walk a little bit later than the standard 12 months, but they're still getting around. And eventually when they stand up, they will walk around. And it's just a sort of normal variant that extends the length of time that they're not walking for. That can be quite concerning to parents when they've literally got that Michelin I spy guide to developmental milestones in the Red Book and they're desperately trying to tick them off and they see a next door neighbor's child walking around and their own child isn't. But it is just a variation of normal. It is just the left-handedness of walking. And I, I like to use left-handedness as an example for parents of something that's totally normal, but not normal, but it is normal but it isn't really normal, but it's normal. Because then they can appreciate that actually development is not rigid. There are variations that are normal. There is a spectrum of normal development. And it's important to know that spectrum of normal development. It would be a, a really good exam question to have a bottom shuffling child and ask what investigations you want to perform. And then you've actually got to tick that box, which is reassure and monitor or reassure and discharge, which is always the most difficult box to tick in a multiple choice exam. Yeah, definitely. So I guess now you've brought up investigations, we should talk about it a bit. Mm. Now, I guess the question of how you investigate children with developmental delay is a bit too broad a question for this podcast because there are, you know, so many potential causes that you've already alluded to and investigation will differ according to kind of what you think is going on. So I guess it would be better to ask whether you have an approach of dealing with investigations and knowing when to investigate and what to do. Yeah, I think when it comes to developmental problems, the who to refer to is as important, if not more important than the what to do. So if you've got, for example, a child with unusual facial features, somebody who you think looks dysmorphic, it's very easy just to sort of send off a microarray, a genetic investigation and see what it comes up with. But really, you should be referring to a geneticist because a microarray is not the sort of broad investigation that everybody thinks it is. It's not just like whole genome sequencing. And a microarray will pick up big print problems like trisomy 21 or 22Q micro deletion, which used to be called the George syndrome, because that's where your, your books have got pages missing, right? But if you're looking for a spelling error on one of the pages, you need a different sort of test. And Noonan syndrome, which is a really relatively common genetic syndrome, 
won't turn up on a microarray. So if you throw a microarray off, you're not going to get a diagnosis of Noonan syndrome. You need a geneticist to be sending exactly the correct panel. So the who is more important than the what. And so if they've got gross motor problems, fine motor problems, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, really, really important. Social and communication, hearing problems, make sure that they've got an audiology referral as well as the speech and language. Make sure that when you've got motor problems that they're having a visual assessment as well because you don't want to miss congenital cataracts because you're too obsessed about whether they can stack bricks or not. The neurometabolic investigations, urinary organic acids and all of that sort of thing needs to be targeted for the children who have got significant developmental delay or developmental regression. Some investigations can be pretty targeted. So if you've got a child who's got pretty normal development and then by the age of four, they're walking up their own legs with their hands in order to stand up and they've got loss of muscle bulk and you think it's Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, sure, do a CK. But that's not actually going to be as important as doing the dystrophin gene and getting them to a geneticist and getting them to a physiotherapist. So the direction of investigation will also be in the direction of diagnosis and of therapy. So don't try to take everything on yourself. In the exam, there will be a sort of, here's a constellation of symptoms, which test is going to give you the actual diagnosis type question. I don't like those questions because they're not representative of what we actually need to do, which is share responsibility in a big MDT. So just be a bit wise to that, that the exam is not necessarily approaching things in the way that you should as a paediatrician. Okay. And then thinking about when you're assessing a child, either in a real clinical situation or in the exam, who's presenting with a developmental delay, are there any, I guess, red flags that would concern you that this was something more serious or more significant than one of the more kind of innocuous causes? So red flags are interesting because what we have with development is we've got a schedule, a recognised schedule of normal. And as well as the obvious red flags that need further assessment, like dysmorphic features or anatomical issues, we have got within the developmental schedule a sort of time limit on each developmental milestone that we need to worry about. So most children will be under the bell curve of when they start walking between 10 months and 40. And so we say it's about 12 months that kids start walking. If they're walking at 16 months, that's fine. If they're walking at 18 months, that's sort of borderline fine, particularly if they bottom shuffled or rolled rather than crawled. But once we get to 20 months, that's not fine. So we have these sort of red flags that are peppered down the timeline that are going, if you're not walking by this point, if you're not reaching for objects by this point, if you're not smiling by this point, then that's a red flag. And knowing not just the average time that children should be achieving things, but knowing the time to worry when they're not is equally important because you shouldn't be worried that a child is not smiling at four weeks and one day when they smile at four weeks and two days, it's reasonable. So those red flags are important, but they again have to be learned. 
and they can be learned using the same sort of technique of that narrative with the clock, but put it in a different context. Don't have it as waking up, otherwise you'll confuse the two stories. So, you know, launch a lifeboat or something, have something that, that says red flag to you. So in the practical exam situation, what you're generally trying to do is to try and assess the developmental level of a child within certain domains and take a concurrent history with the parent about any concerns that they have. You don't necessarily need to come up with a diagnosis, but you do need to say whether you are concerned. So the, the big things to look out for are dysmorphic facial features and other anatomical abnormalities that lead you towards a syndromic diagnosis. That's important to look out for. But I'm not sure that you would fail a developmental station for correctly identifying that a child with Angelman syndrome is not communicating appropriately and getting everything absolutely correct, but you don't mention Angelman syndrome. You know, there's a syndromic diagnosis. You need to refer to a geneticist for tests, but you've also got these other problems. And the mainstay for that family is going to be therapeutic input. So identifying that the child needs an auditory test from an audiologist, knowing that they need input from speech and language is important. Making sure that you take a history that includes whether they've got epilepsy and things like that that need to be controlled because poor seizure control, even poor sleep will affect your ability to develop properly. And poor sleep is another confounding factor that I didn't mention earlier in the confounding factors section. The hardest thing in the exam is when a child who can walk refuses to and working out whether a child can do something that they're choosing not to or whether they can't do something. And so the approach that you have to take in a developmental assessment is always to see whether you can play with the child and stimulate them to do the thing that you want them to do. But if they can't, actually actively asking the parent, can they walk? Have they ever been able to walk? And that's not cheating. It sort of feels like cheating when you're trying to assess the gross motor skills and then you just ask the parent, can they reach for objects? But that has to be after having a little go yourself and commenting on it. So those are the sort of the, the tips from a developmental point of view. A, a bit like a driving test, you've, you've got to show that you know what you're doing. And just because you've picked up a block and handed it to a child doesn't mean that the examiner knows that you're assessing not just grasp, but whether they pass it from one hand to another. So you've got to sort of inform the examiner or inform the parent what you're wanting the child to do without getting the very keen parents to help their child too much, where they sort of, you know, they hold their child's hand and like physically pass the block with their child's hand. That is cheating. So yeah, treat it like a driving test, but have a set of tasks for each modality that you want to achieve. You'll be given all the kit, just run through it and play with the child. You don't have to form a diagnosis in 10 minutes because most community pediatricians have got an hour and still don't form a diagnosis. No. So moving on now to our standard quickfire questions, which you know very well by now, and you've kind of talked about this as we've gone along, but what are the classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? So I think we're looking at classic exam questions under one of the largest umbrella topics. So it's really hard to pick sort of classic exam questions because the topic is so broad. 
But I would say that they do ask exam questions in the, the written exams under all of the different modalities. So make sure that you know causes of gross motor, fine motor, social and communication delay, that you've got an understanding of what audiologists do and what visual acuity is like. I think the other thing that is important, maybe more for the clinical exam, is noticing things in a developmental assessment that are of clinical and medical importance and knowing the sequently of developmental delay. So knowing about pegs, knowing that a child with cerebral palsy who is wheelchair bound needs to be plotted on a different growth chart. There is a cerebral palsy specific growth chart because of the different amount of muscle bulk. Knowing the risks of osteopenia in children who aren't moving is really important. And so having a really broad knowledge, not just of the causes of developmental delay, but also of what developmental delay itself causes, because it is not a diagnosis, it is a description and it is a journey. It's almost like labeling a child that they're going to be on a certain pathway with certain risks that need to be mitigated against. So be aware of what the present is like for your child. They're not meeting their milestones, but always have your eye focused on what the future might be for the child and what the risks are that parents need to look out for. Great. And secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend? There are many useful resources, but unlike usually when I point people towards guidelines, what I'm going to do this podcast is point people towards people, human resources, because the people who deal with neurodisability and developmental medicine are the absolute experts in this. And you're going to get much more help from physiotherapists and portage staff and special educational needs teachers and educational psychologists and occupational therapists than you are just from looking at a textbook. And so going to colleagues, going to friends, asking to shadow them or asking what their approach is to a child with an unexplained syndrome, or how do you investigate a child who is trying to walk but can't or who's lost the ability to walk? They're the people who are going to help. So actually get out from behind your desk and go and speak to some people, go and speak to the audiologists and find out what the different types of hearing aid are and how kids wear them, because they are going to be able to help you answer that exam question of whether you're taking refer to, for cochlear implant, refer for bone anchored hearing aids, refer for spectacles, you know, those, those tick box ones where you're, you're really not quite sure that you've experienced this before in community or hospital pediatrics, your colleagues are going to help you. So go and see other people. Sure, I think that's really good advice and actually hopefully something that we're going to explore more across these podcasts by talking to a variety of different specialists about developmental issues. Final question, what are your three takeaway learning points? So my three takeaway learning points are, number one, development is messy and a big ball of wibbly neurological stuff. It's not nice, discrete domains that you want to learn them in. The developmental milestones are, as Jeffrey Rush says in Pirates of the Caribbean, they're more like guidelines rather than strict rules. So you've got to be aware of how fluid they are. And remember, global delay is actually not global. 
It just means more than one. So have a good understanding of developmental framework, but also how wibbly and messy it is. The second thing is that developmental milestones are hard to learn, but it is possible to learn them. But you have to learn them creatively. You're never going to be able to remember a colossal table. And so try to create a narrative story. Try to create something in your head that allows you to retain those bits of information with times associated at them. So have a, a story that includes a clock. And then the third thing is have an idea about the various confounding factors in developmental delay that don't tell you whether or not to worry. You've still got to monitor a child who's delayed, even if they're delayed for a good reason, but that maybe are more reassuring to parents. So start flying, being premature, being brought up in a household with multiple different languages. Those sorts of slight confounding factors are just as important as the worrying factors like neglect or disease. So have an idea of the broad areas that can affect development, both positively and negatively, and use those in your developmental assessment in order to try to come to a conclusion about how much to worry. And the fourth thing of my three key points is speak to other people, because referring on is going to aid your diagnosis and your treatment. It's not just you that has to come up with the diagnosis and treatment plan. It's a team effort. Indeed. Well, thank you very much for giving us such an excellent overview over these last two episodes. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.